You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. Um, I'm sure you know by now, and if you didn't, then the title of this podcast would have given it away, um, that dear Baz, Barry Cryer, has left us. He passed away last week after an incredible innings uh, and, and a phenomenal career in comedy and is one of those people who, on his passing, just seems to have been universally, absolutely loved. And... Um, I am just re-releasing this episode. He was uh, he was very uh, kind to invite me round to his house, and uh, we drank several cups of tea over three hours uh, that his wife Terry kindly made for us, and um, and he chain smoked constantly the entire time. I think we managed to cut a, a good lot of coughs out of this interview, and there are plenty more there. Um, uh, I noticed as well that Barry had uh, recently started a podcast, which I must listen to. I would love to hear that when uh, it feels appropriate to, to re-listen. I just wanted to, to put this episode back out there um, because it's, uh, it was a long time ago and it'll have slid way, way down past your feed. Um, he was absolutely wonderful. He was so inspirational and seems to have been responsible for so many jokes, either responsible for writing them. And as we as we talk about in this episode, he he doesn't seem to take a lot of credit for writing jokes, but um, uh, he certainly popularised a lot of them. And I think, I mean, you you read the tone for yourself. It feels to me very much like he kind of hides his light under a bushel in that respect. I think he sort of bridges the gap between being a joke writer and the days when people would kind of collect jokes and, and pass them on in the kind of club circuit. And um, and I think he, I'm sure he did both. And I'm sure I've seen lots of jokes attributed to him kind of flying around at the moment that probably weren't his, but probably the version of it that, that really made it was his version. Um, he worked with people from Spike Milligan to Tommy Cooper to the two Ronnies. He was genuinely a legend. And to give you some sense of the uh, what you'll get from the tone of this uh, this episode, I'm sure, and um, but to get a sort of sense of the sort of silliness with which he regarded himself and his position and the the function of comedy in the world, um, his uh, Twitter page is still available, and the biog begins. Barry Cryer, one of the better, cheaper acts. Here's Barry Cryer. Thanks so much for your time. It's an incredible privilege to be no, invited no, around your house, pleasure. Barry. Pleasure. It's oh, I've broken that off. So the, this is for a podcast called The Comedian's Comedian, which I've been doing for about five years. Yeah. and had something like 200 guests on. Um, I'm a stand-up comedian. I've been going for about 12 years. And I started doing this show because I... Um, I used to be a street performer beforehand in yeah. Covent Garden. I used to walk on a tightrope, all that kind of malarkey. Oh yeah, Covent Garden. And, yeah, lovely. So um, I started off. 
I was aware that I'd never done any training in how to be a comedian. So my thought was, if I, if I find the greatest comics and uh, maybe I can, uh, I can get them to do a, like a masterclass for me and other comedians of my level. I thought, and do you know Simon Evans? Oh, yeah. Yes. So he was the first person I approached. I said, Simon, you're a brilliant joke writer. If me and 10 other comics of my level got together and we all chipped in 20 quid, could you do us like a session in how you write your jokes? And he said, good God, no, but you could, uh, you could take me for a coffee if you liked. So I bought, I bought him a coffee and we had a chat about writing and I came away and thought, I've already forgotten half of that. I wish I'd recorded it. So that's oh, right. basically, that's how it started. How it yeah. started. So I tell you so when I get interviewed, which I do a lot being old, I'm not a comedian. And people go, what? I said, I'm not a comedian. I spent my working life with comedians, the men and women, and the good ones, the original. They've got something, or funny bones, however you define it. They have an original approach. I tell stories and sing songs. Entertainer's a nice word. I can live with that. Yes. But I always disclaim being a comedian, because I know what comedians are. I've spent my life with them, you know, and I don't think... I'm one of them. I'm a writer originally. Well, no, I was a stand-up originally. We uh-huh. didn't call it stand-up. But even then, young as I was, it was just stories. It wasn't, you know, original material. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'm quite happy with my role, but I don't regard myself as a comedian. So what do you think is the, what do you think is the difference between a comedian and what you do? It's a, is it about originating material about it, one's own life? It's indefinable. It's the funny bones thing. You can't define it. Before there was that wonderful program, I used to call it the X Factor. The great ones, they got the personality, the material, the timing and everything, but they got something else and you could never work out what it was. When they walked on, the audience went, ah, you couldn't analyse it. There's something, warmth is a good word, even when somebody's fierce, but they've got warmth. The people that I most uh, immediately think of when you describe that are people that I know I've been particularly researching you recently. So I've seen a lot of I was watching some Jokers Wild oh God, on YouTube. Yes, <laughs> people send me DVDs. Uh, really? I've got to be honest, I'd never seen it before. It is an absolutely fascinating document yeah. of a sort of for anyone that doesn't know it. It's sort of it, it's the kind of mock the week from. Yeah. I don't know how many years ago, but yeah. it, all of the comedians all so, look like newsreaders. Not a woman in sight. Not a woman in sight. All men in their, I don't know what, oh, yeah, 30s, there's some 40s, real 50s. veterans as well, like but, Ted Ray and Arthur Askey. And, yeah, Arthur Askey's on one of the teams. Les I, Dawson. I, uh, somebody else rang the other week, would want to do an interview, uh, talking about a com- comedy idol. And I thought, right, fly the flag. And I said, uh, Victoria Wood. So he got back to me and said, no, they say that's too recent. That was not long after she left. Sure. So I thought, I'm going to talk about somebody nobody talks about anymore. And I said, Arthur Askey. Arthur Askey was the first uh, star comedian on television who didn't just face the camera and do his act or something. He turned to another camera and talked to you at home. Okay. And Eric Morgan told me, I got that from Arthur. You go to another camera. Miranda Hart does that because she yes. venerates Eric Morecambe. Stuart Lee turns his back on the audience and talks to you on another camera. All the great people have done it before. And then I was saying Arthur Askew was a great originator and somebody said, what about Oliver Hardy in the Laurel and Hardy film? <laughs> Looking at the camera, yes. at you in the cinema. 
brilliant people have done it before. Yes. Know? So when you're, when you're, let's just stay with this idea at the minute of whether or not someone has funny bones. Because I think of people like Tommy Cooper, yes. Les Dawson. Yeah. You wrote for, you wrote for Tommy Cooper, is that yes. right? Yeah. Because I remember, I think the first time I heard that years ago, whatever it was, oh, Barry used to write for Tommy Cooper. I remember thinking, how could anyone write for yes. Tommy Cooper? Because yeah. he made it so completely his own. Well, First of all, Tom came uh, knee-deep in jokes he got from joke books and everything. But I always said he shared a joke with the audience. If you saw some of Tommy's jokes on paper, you think, well, yeah, but that's not that funny. But him saying it was, it was almost like he's saying to the audience, I know this is a terrible joke. And they thought, he knows we know. He's sharing a joke with the audience when he does a joke. Uh, as regards sketches and everything, he didn't like reading. He wasn't dyslexic or anything. He didn't like the discipline of sitting at a table and reading. Uh, he'd wander off the script always in a sketch. So we used to book people who were used to working with him who can get him back on course. <laughs> First time I wrote for him, St Paul's Church in Hammersmith, the church hall. And I'd written a, 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 a television list. Uh, and I'd, uh, well, obviously it was. He didn't do much radio. Uh, and I'd written a sort of little two or three minute bit for him. And uh, I noticed he repeated himself a lot. Good evening, good evening. So I'd written good evening, comma, good evening, full stop uh, to start this bit. And the PA, she presses the stopwatch and Tom went, good evening, go, what's this? <laughs> and stopped, so they stopped the watch. What's this, Barry? I said, you say everything twice, so I put it twice. You put it once, I'll say it twice, you get the best of the bargain. I never knew what that meant. <laughs> Made me laugh. No, he didn't like uh, reading. You could give Tom an idea and he'd run with it. That was the brilliance of the man. Uh, Dick Hills, the writer, Sid Green and Dick Hills, had made Eric and Ernie stars, you know, on ITV. And then they went to BBC and the great Eddie Braben and changed their image. And me and John Junkin. Eddie Braben is the only name I had associated uh, with writing for more Well, than I, okay. I wrote a lot for Eric and Ernie with John Junkin. But I used to irritate John by calling Eddie the A-team because he changed their image completely. Ernie was the pompous little playwright and Eric was the sarcastic, I'm better than you. And Eric said, we're both idiots. Eric said, I'm a bigger idiot than him because I think I'm smarter than him. <laughs> and that was all Eddie Braven. That was Eddie. But <clears throat> when Sid Green, Dick Hill's partner, retired due to ill health, Dick Hill's was around on his own and then we got together and we both wrote for Tommy. Now, we just gave Tommy an idea once. It was Dick's idea. A ventriloquist on a cruise ship in a rough storm. And they did this wonderful tilting set. And there was hardly any script. It was just an idea on a bit of paper. And there was a porthole. And every so often, somebody opened the porthole and threw a bucket of water over Tom and the doll. And it, it was just superb, but there was hardly any material. Can you describe to us the, the circumstances in which you would be trying to generate those ideas? Is that idea about a ventriloquist dummy on a ship during a storm? Yeah. Was that one of 50 ideas you came up with that day no, that you it, thought that's the one? What, what did that room look like? Uh, people say to me a lot, uh, you wrote for everybody. I say, we wrote for everybody. There's a whole gang of us, and I never wrote alone. So, you know, as you know, if you're writing with somebody, you're banging the ideas to and fro. 
And if it works, a partnership, you only use ideas you both liked. <laughs> John Chuckman used to sulk a bit if I didn't like one of his ideas. And I'd say, you're, you're allowed to dislike some of my ideas as well. Let's get on with it, you know. I love the the play between the two of you when you're writing. So, yes, you'd have a quite a few ideas for someone like Tommy, and one or two would get into the show, but you overload. I always said we were like tailors making suits. You had to hear the voice and see the face in your mind when you were writing. And uh, Dennis Norton, who's 90 now, one of my idols, still a friend and still with us happily, he said there's a sitter and a walker. In those days, you're scribbling on a bit of paper or a typewriter, and I'd be the laptop or whatever. But I've talked to younger ones now, and they say, yeah, it's true, actually. He or she sits there, and I'm walking about the room. John Duncan used to walk around the room twiddling his glasses, being Eric Morecambe. Ah, that's interesting. Did you did you ever do that? Did you ever find yourself kind of inhabiting the character of the yeah. person you're writing for? I, I would I would sit like that if I was writing for Tommy. <laughs> you know what I mean? You okay. staccato, yes, not smooth delivery, yes. That's that's incredible because I think the, the the breadth of acts that you wrote for and this I think I'm writing I think there's a bit of a um, there's been a sea change clearly in how comedy writers are seen. Well, people write for themselves far more than they did. Absolutely, and I think it's often regarded, or it can be regarded as sort of cheating. People people hush up the fact that they work with writers, or if they if they do work with writers, when I talk to them about it on this show, they're very quick to point out that they're writing with a friend. There, you know, yes. what I mean, no one no one is prepared to admit to accepting a page of jokes from a writer. Well, that's sad. Yeah, well, it is. It's odd that it's that it's changed that way. One of the things that really interested me about Joker's Wild was this. It was it was almost as if it was a bit like Mock the Week with a lot of white men in their thirties, forties, and fifties in suits who may have been smoking at the time. I can't remember. No, exactly we were smoking. Like smoke <laughs> drifting across the screen. Oh, there we are. <laughs> me stubbing a cigarette out before I spoke to one of the comedians. You can't believe what you're watching. <laughs> it's incredible. But it, it's almost as if rather than with something like Mock the Week, the subject is the week's news the, the the theme there is a joke about a thing in a, a shop so you'll 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 say here's your here's your subject here's your subject and people will start doing jokes that are clearly joke jokes that are like this bloke walks into a bar yes. and you know if the subject is lager you go, okay this guy walks into a bar this horse walks into a bar and so everyone is trying to use their best and on joke as well there was interruption of another yes, comedian yeah. and the other comedian would say and this horse said to the and they, if they recognised a sort of a, a, a subject or like a character in the joke that they had something on yeah. they'd buzz in and they'd do a little peripheral joke about yeah I never thought of about Mock the Week is sort of almost ruthless it's get off, I'm on now, you know, yes, on and well, off. I think that's... At least uh, with Joe as well, they're all sitting down relaxing. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Jack Douglas, a man who was in all the carry-on films and everything, he'd been half of a double act. And uh, Jack, your subject is eternity. Eternity. So he starts telling, he's as if he's going to tell a story. And then he said, the, the main definition of... Uh, Eternity is waiting for Les Dawson to buy a round. <laughs> Les Dawson was on the show, got up and walked off in front of the camera. I never found out it was a setup at all. Yorkshire Television leads, and the bar wasn't 
far from the studio. It was almost across the corridor. <laughs> so we kept fooling around, and the director said, keep rolling, and we were messing about. And Les came back with a tray of drinks, with a drink for everybody, except Jack Douglas. <laughs> Those are the lovely moments you had on that show. So it does seem that the, the writing at that time was about originating that was such such writing has happened was about originating man walked into a bar type jokes yes are there are there are there jokes that are still you know what we think of as i mean i think of them as pub jokes or street jokes yes, you know, that's kind right. of commonly owned jokes yeah are there any particular ones in common usage that you originated no i'd always say none of us claim to have written those the folklore I, my theory is that something happened in real life and a bright brain thought, no, it'd be funnier if she'd said it, not him. Or, oh, wait a minute, that could have happened in Paris. Now, you see what I'm talking about? I think they grew organically. None of us claim to have written those jokes. Is that right? The, okay. the pub joke and the what, whatever joke. Uh, material is a different thing, as you well know, material. Sure. No, people often say to me... I told one of your jokes last night. <laughs> I say, I only lease them. There's no copyright. It's not mine, that joke. I yes. heard it somewhere. That is, that is interesting. Was, was anyone in the habit of taking credit for jokes that, that are kind of archetypal pub jokes? Out of all the oh, writers yeah, you've I've worked with. I've heard people say, uh, oh, you know, when I do that bit about blah, 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 and of course I ruin everything by saying, oh, yeah, we all remember that one. <laughs> It was done by uh, Bob Hope in 1954. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, but someone must originally have... Because I, I think of it, I think of it in, um, in terms of the street performing world, which is a much kind of simple... It's often a microcosm oh, of I the do performing admire, world. You're oh, naked, oh. aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Naked. Fre frequently. <laughs> Didn't Eddie Izzard start yes, he in did, the yeah. street? Yes, yeah. we were never oh. We never did Covent Garden at the same time. We've got a lot of Boy, mutual friends. Boy, I admire that. Yes. I always stop when I walk through Covent Garden. What's going on? Yes. If, I, if I'm running early, I always... Join the crowd. I always join the people. See what's happening now. Very glad to hear. There's some guy standing on his head. You yeah, know, exactly. Yeah. You think, what is this? Standing, Wonderful. Who used to do? Someone used to do standing with their head in a bucket of water, doing a headstand, escaping from handcuffs. Wonderful. The name escapes me. But the point I was going to make is that there's a lot of stock material. In, yes. in street shows, just as there are with MCs. If you see an MC in a comedy club, comedians are more generous with their... They're less likely to criticise an MC for yes. borrowing from the pot. Because yes. we're like, well, we all... The, the MC's got the whole night on their back. If they do a little bit of something that's they're a allowed. little bit hoary and old... Yeah. Exactly, they're allowed. Um, but with, with reference to street performing, I remember hearing that one of the people who uh, originated a lot of those jokes that became common usage was noel britain i don't know if you know i don't know if you know noel he's um he lives in bath he does the bizarre bath walk and he's oh, been on yes. the circuit for a long time honing the same half an hour for years and years, yes. and years. he was an early yes. guest on the show but a brilliant writer of jokes and i remember at the time kind of hearing that he had when everyone else was just street performing in the 80s, just getting out there and trying to get crowds, he was sat there writing jokes and writing jokes. And now you can trace the history of street performing. You, certain lines, you can go, oh, that was Noel Britton. He actually wrote it. It becomes the standard thing. Yes, exactly. It becomes the standard a thing. song or something. You know? Exactly, exactly. And I just wondered if, I mean, you must have seen over your, what, 50-year career? It's 60 Longer, years 60? First paid job, I was uh, 
61 years. First paid job I ever did, my hometown Leeds City Varieties Theatre. I was 21. I'm now 82. Do the math. <laughs> that's, that's some pretty easy math. Oh, and I did... Um, <laughs> Last year, I did uh, City Varieties Leeds. Oh, really? On a on a bill, and uh, they only wanted twenty minutes, you know. And I can talk all night. And I'm standing behind the tabs, and my friend Johnny Dennis, who's left us sadly since, was the chairman. And I think I'm naked. I first stepped on the stage sixty years ago. They only want twenty minutes. What twenty minutes? And my knees buckled. My legs started to go. I couldn't believe what was happening. I thought, I'm going to fall down in front of the audience. And Johnny went, Barry Crow! And the tabs opened, and I beamed at the audience and said, Hello! And I looked into the wings. I said, Anybody got a stool? And John, the brilliant juggler who was on just before me, he came on so quickly. It was one of them. Here you are, Baz. Gave me a stool. And I, I did a Dave Allen, you know, sitting down I did my act. And I came off, and John Stiles, an old friend, was on the bill. And I said, John, my knees went just as I was going on. He said, you're never too old to be nervous, Baz. <laughs> it got to you suddenly, didn't it? It was amazing sensation. When was, when was the last time before that you'd had pre-gig nerves? Had that been a while? Uh, yeah, but n- never to the extent of knees buckling, I'm going to fall over. Because, because why do you think? What, because the, the, f- the whole the... situation closed in on me. I thought, this great old musical, oh, God, my brain was wandering this mm. 60 years ago, and, ah, 20 minutes, but what, 20 minutes? Mm. Oh, I love to, no, you've left it too late, what are you going to do? <laughs> I think a lot of comedians listening to this will... Um... Uh, really empathise with that sensation of you've left it too late. Yeah. I, al- I always say, sorry, I always say anybody in our business who says they don't get nerves is either lying or they're not very good. <laughs> I don't call it nerves anymore. I call it creative apprehension. You, it's, nice it's positive. Term. You think, ooh, 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 adrenaline going. Yes. And all the greats I work with, Eric Morecambe, Tommy Cooper, all of them, pacing up and down, on edge before they went on, in a, in a good, positive way. Eric Morkin used to walk about twiddling with a handkerchief in his breast pocket before he went on. And the good ones always had that, never complacent. Here's a massive name drop. John Junkin and I wrote uh, for Bob Hope, who was going to appear on the Parkinson show. And we wrote his thousandth version of Thanks for the Memory, his signature tune, with a lot of topical jokes in the lyric. Yes. John couldn't be there. I'm now sitting alone with Bob Hope behind the set. He hasn't met Parkinson. So Bob Hope said, uh, what's this guy Parkinson like? I said, he'll interview you from a kneeling position. And he went, ha, ha, ha. And then I heard my voice say, I couldn't believe it, I said, but you're Bob Hope. Yeah, he said, I'm Bob Hope. World famous comedian, he said. I don't make him laugh in the first two or three minutes. He'll say, oh, that's the great Bob Hope, is it? Still, not complacent. And then he said to me, which was fascinating, this is many years ago, obviously, the young ones in America don't like me. I'm the hawk, friend of the president. After Vietnam, this was. That man risked his life in the Second World War, going all over, entertaining the troops, sometimes in very dangerous zones. But the young ones thought, oh, him. Uh-huh. And he was aware of it. Uh-huh. He wasn't 
you know, locked into himself. It was fascinating. Bob Hope. When it, so you, was that the extent of you writing for Bob Hope, writing that song, the thousandth version? Yes, that's the, the only okay. Bob Hope writing I okay, yeah. <laughs> My Another idol of mine, I'm very unpatriotic, was uh, Jack Benny, who I did write for. I had a great year at the Elstree Studios in the 70s. And Des O'Connor was doing a series that was shown in America, Summer Replacement, it was rather patronisingly called. At the same time, they were doing Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine. So the people you met and who were around, uh, Groucho Marx turned up to do the uh, Marty Feldman programme. And uh, Jack Benny I, I wrote for, and this, he played a mean, conceited coward but the audience knew what the joke was. Okay. He's a lovely man. Oh, what a lovely man to work with. Remembered everybody's name. Do you want a cup of tea? And he was a lovely guy. But when he was on, and he loved other people getting laughs, which, as you know, can be quite rare. Yes. Because yes, he generosity knew, in he that respect. He'd get absolutely. his big laugh with his reaction. Yes. You know, the, the blank stare when they said something. Tell you a story. There's... Uh, I've got the DVD of the Jack Benny TV show of many years ago. And uh, no rubbish, his guests. The sketch started. There wasn't a funny line in the sketch. It was just superb. It was all about embarrassment. And the sketch started with Jack Benny reading a menu alone in a restaurant. James Stewart and his wife walk in. Enormous applause. James Stewart's first line was... Oh, no, it's Benny. And they hid behind their menus. And somebody asked James Stewart for his autograph. And Jack Benny hears the word autograph and smirks and stands up, comes face to face with James Stewart. He was brilliant. James Stewart, now, really embarrassed. Ah, hello, Jack. This This is my wife, Gloria. Hello, Gloria. James Stewart now thinks... I don't know what to say now. I've got... Uh, is, uh, I, are you missing television, Jack? This is on the Jack <laughs> Benny show. I'm on every Wednesday night. Ah, uh, uh, well, 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 we're out every Wednesday night. How can you be out every Wednesday night? And James Stewart's wife said, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> that was just superb. Are there, are there particular jokes that you wrote for or with uh, performers that became regular parts of their act? Oh, I don't know. I can't claim that. I didn't follow through and, you know, but I, I must I'm, have done, but I can't remember through the years. Oh, I, oh God, I wrote that line. Yeah, no, I can't. Really? I can't be specific. I, I would have thought if, I, if it was me, I would be sat there watching someone do a bit and kind of uh, holding a little, like, I mean, did you, did you, you must have watched the performers when your stuff went out. Were you oh, standing yeah. at the side of the stage going, I hope this one flies or did uh, you yes, absolute yes, confidence? Yes, yes. My main reaction was I was just thrilled to be writing for them, you know. I was doing bits of performing all the time when I was writing and people would say, oh, I said I was a backroom boy. And they'd say, oh, didn't you think you'd rather be on? i say, if you're writing for Morecambe Wise, do you think you could do it better than they're doing it now? You know, I was very happy. Yes. Backroom boy writing. Oh, yeah, yeah. What was your very first, when, when you went on at the Leeds Variety and did that very first gig? Yes. What sort of young man were you? Were you interested in making people laugh socially? Yeah, 
I suppose I was. I mean, I was the cliche at school, making the bully laugh. You know, and you get away. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of cliches. There's a lot of different. Uh, I won't name comedians him. I won't school. name him. If he ever hears this, he'll know who it is. <laughs> there was a, a guy at school who used to whip us with wet towels, and we used to go to school on a tram, and he'd sit and crush you in the corner. He was awful. He is now a lord. He sent his regards to me a couple of years ago through the Variety Club. My warmest regards to Barry. I thought, I remember you. Yes. Lepers don't change the spots. So you, do you bully your employees now? He's a very successful businessman. I thought, if I ever meet him, it'll be, oh, hello. And I'll be looking, thinking, I remember you. Do you know... Fascinating. The comedian Shappy Corsandi said oh, I something... Oh, Shappy, Shappy says, She said something very similar about a person who is now in the public eye who made friendly overtures to her recently now that she's famous and successful oh, yeah, yeah. and had a very similar experience of thinking, I remember, I remember who you are. Yeah. Do you think there was some... I mean, was there? Were you frequently bullied as a as a child? No, no, no. It, that wasn't like part of the the no, crucible. No, I was like it. the shop steward for my mates because <laughs> this, this guy was just awful. He okay. was the archetypal bully at school. But, so I think my mates used to egg me on to do the jokes and try and make him laugh or distract him, and then we'd be off somewhere else but that's interesting that you had a sort of a shared responsibility you weren't just getting yourself out of trouble with this bully well I'm looking back hindsight saga (laughs) (laughs) looking back uh, that must have been sort of in my mind at the moment we're all mates here except him yes Uh, therefore I'm I'm out front heading him off yeah, but that, that, that's very interesting, particularly when, if we look at that through the lens of your desire to make people laugh without what usually accompanies it with people who perform, with comedians who perform, um, which is a sense that you want to make people laugh and it's all about you. You want to take the laughs for yourself, for yeah. oneself. I think yeah. that's much more common. Whereas I think what you're describing is a much more generous sort of spirit to do with your comedy you love to create a joke for the the joy of the joke itself but you're happy to give that joke away to let someone else i'm feeling very smug now <laughs> good <laughs> don't, but... don't praise me i'll become unbearable <laughs> no i know what you mean i love the joke as a syndrome anyway i always say the great jokes like the joke joke this elephant goes into a pub the sort yep. of thing we were talking about they're like little plays you think what happened there? <laughs> you know, the good joke is a sequence, usually yes. one, two, three, you know. Uh, but uh, what happened then, you think, when you're listening to the joke? Uh, Graham Garden, my old friend, never tells jokes, lovely man. But he once told a joke, he'd got it on his phone or something. Boy, we're all listening, Graham's telling a joke. What about this for the start of a joke? This ventriloquist is stranded in the outback in Australia. What a start. Isn't that wonderful? His train hasn't turned up at this little station. He's marooned. He's pissed off. He's fed up. And a farmer arrives on a horse with a dog and some sheep. And the ventriloquist thinks, I'll cheer myself up. And he said to the farmer, can I have a word with your horse? What? Can I have a word with your horse? Yeah. And he said to the horse, how's it going, mate? And the horse says, going great, mate. Got the run of the territory, nice warm bar to sleep in, no worries. <laughs> Farmer's looking, can I have a word with your dog? Yeah. 
How's it with you? Same with me, mate. Three square meals, nice kennel, running about with a sheep. Bonds are beaut. Couldn't believe it. He said, could I have a word with that sheep? And the farmer said, that sheep's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is something that, I've, that, that I've, there were lots of things to talk about with that. Something I particularly feel smug about is that as a comedian, I feel like I got the joke just before it, just before the punchline. You must have that a lot. Oh, yeah. When you go, you must, you're so familiar with the structure, with all of the, the layout of a joke, <coughs> that you hear the, the things, you're going, okay, animals, we're in Australia, what do we know about animals and their yes. relationships with Australians? And is the third one going to be a sheep? Yes, it is. So you get a sense of, I mean, it's a brilliant joke and very satisfying I think that's yeah. you know a joke has to be surprising yet satisfying and and making those two things work there's together there's one joke that I, I still tell to audiences now and again and I think the audience have got it a split second before the end of it but they still love it and I'll tell you it a doctor's relaxing in a pub after a hard day's surgery and a guy comes over to him and says, I know you're off duty, Doc, sorry. He said, oh, dear, what? He said, I've got these blinding headaches, migraines, and I've taken the paracetamol and the disprin, and my own doctor can't help me. My headaches are driving me mad. And the doctor said, you won't believe this. I'm a doctor. I had these blinding headaches that would drive me mad as well. I didn't know what to do. He said, I'm in bed with my wife one night, buried my head in her bosom between her boobs, slept like a baby, never had a headache since. Think about it. And man said, thank you. A few days later, the doctor's in the pub. He sees the guy. He said, you were the guy with the headaches. Did you try what I suggested? And the man said, I did. Haven't you got a lovely home? <laughs> And it doesn't matter for once with that joke. Yes. The audience, in their minds, they're going, oh, I bet he did yeah. it with the doctor's wife. But yes. they love it. And I tell you what's lovely they about... They feel good about themselves. Yes. I guess the end. Yes. Because they, you're, you're allowed, the joke allows the listener to get there first and feel happy for getting there first. Yeah, for for yeah. making that closure, what Seinfeld talks about, you know, jumping over the cliff at yes. just the right time. It's the only joke I know personally where I'm very happy if I think, Oh, they've guessed the end yes. of this one. And then also, what's beautiful about that joke is, haven't you got a lovely home? Still continues to let them join the dots. It's it's not just saying it's like wording again. Absolutely, the, the end of that joke could easily be. And it's lovely. Haven't you got a lovely home? <laughs> It's got style. Yes, because uh, uh, that joke, less well told, would end with the man saying, yes, and I have to say your wife was, you know what I mean, yeah, making yeah, it completely exactly. obvious. Yes. That's the style of the joke. It's not a reference to wife at all. Yes. It paints the whole picture, haven't you? got a lovely hope. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this now I'd like to spend some time analysing some, uh, some of my favourite jokes. You'll be uh, familiar with the three beekeepers. Do you know oh, this one? Oh no! Jog my memory. Oh, this is one of my. Fa- this is a. This is a real comics joke, and I'd be. F- I mean, now I'm under pressure. God, can I make no, no, up with the beekeeper? Um, so there's three beekeepers, and they meet in a pub. It's a very solitary profession. They don't often meet other beekeepers. So one says, "Hey, listen, what's?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. This is this joke. I like it. It's a <laughs> solitary profession. I've, I've been contributing my own <laughs> tweets. They don't to often meet other they, beekeepers. You don't often meet. I, mean, I love that. <laughs> so uh, they they meet the first 
first one says, so how many bees have you got? And he says, oh, I've got about 10,000 bees. And how many hives do you keep them in? Oh, well, I wasn't sure, but I thought about 1,000 bees per hive. That seems reasonable. So I've got 10 hives. What about yourself? He says, oh, I've, I've got rather more than that. I've got about 400,000 bees. And how many hives have you got? He says, well, I, I actually, I, I made a similar calculation. Actually, I've got 38,000 <coughs> hives. So it sort of roughly works out the same. And they're like, okay, well, that's nice. And they talk to the third beekeeper who's up to that point been nursing his pint. He says, how many bees have you got? He says, I've got well over a million bees. So that's a lot of bees. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know. How many hives have you got? Uh, one. So well, you've got over a million bees in just one hive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other two look at him and go, isn't that a bit cruel? He goes, nah, fuck them. <laughs> I tuned in just yeah, before yeah, the I end. You it's brilliant. It's I, I love that joke. I don't think I could love anyone who doesn't appreciate the beekeeper's oh, joke nice. because it is such a beautiful. I mean, it's it's basically a shaggy dog story, but there's so much uh, emotion and the insanity so of hating bees. Yes, well, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And also, the joke I just told you about that sheep's a liar. When <laughs> Graham told it, it was that sheep's a fucking liar. Yeah, right. But it still works without the adjective. Yes. But I love the punch of fucking liar. Yeah. <laughs> the anger of the farmer, you know. That is interesting. The the introduction of uh, of swearing into jokes, because obviously there are some, you know, in the, the vast majority, I'm sure of your of your broadcast material, there's no room for swearing, and you well, have to be uh, as funny. Old, old man now, the audience don't take it from me. Yes, and I think oh, a lot yes, of the young ones who literate with F and that, they're funnier than that. I, th- I think no, you don't need all that. Frank Skinner said he once did his set, his act one night, and he cut every F word and every swear word out. He said it went just as well. Mm. He said, but I've stuck several back in just to cheer myself up. (laughs) You don't necessarily need it, but the the awful C word, right, we know what I'm saying. And uh, this is a classic Jewish joke. Maury the stereotype is walking down the street looking very (laughs) depressed, and Jaime, his friend, says, Maury, what? He said, I've just been in court. He said, yeah, tell me. He said, I got fined. He said, that's bad. He says, worse, I was only a witness. <laughs> he said, tell me, tell me what happened. He said, I go in this box, they bring a book. I put my hand on the book and the man said, your name? I said, Morris Abrahams. And the judge said, are you Jewish, Mr. Abrahams? I said, don't be a cunt. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That's fabulous. And I've told it to Jewish friends, and I'm often assumed to be Jewish. Yes. uh, And I'm very happy about it, but I'm not. And I've apologised to the women there before. I'm so sorry about this, but they're egging me on. They loved it. Yes. Well, there's something about that joke, which part of the the sort of the subtextual garden path that it's leading us up is the yeah. you, the listener is thinking, oh God, I hope this is the right sort of joke. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Because it could easily turn out to have prejudice, and then at yes. the end, the person who we thought would be the victim of the joke is actually it does the, the victor. He's the wrong party, and, he yeah. get, and you know the other person. Tell you a story up. about not not being Jewish. My old friend. It was a terrible year last year. I needed a season ticket for funerals oh. uh, in the business, particularly Ronnie Corbett and so on. Mm. Uh, Clive, our local vicar, died, an old friend. And uh, the local paper, the Harrow Times, did an obituary. And they said his old friend, Jewish comedian Barry Cryer. So I thought, now I was just amused. I thought I liked it. So I thought, game on. And I rang them, and this woman answered the phone. Oh, hello. 
I said, uh, the obituary of Clive, the vicar, yes. I said, you describe me as a Jewish comedian. Uh, I'm not. And she said, do you want an apology? I said, no. <laughs> I said, you can have a quote. I'm not Jewish. If I was, I'd be proud, but I'm not. And I printed that. But do you want an apology? <laughs> Isn't that awful? I thought she was going to come back with a killer put down about you not being a comedian. <laughs> oh, it, the same week, you couldn't make this up. I was at uh, a lunch and the guy latched on to me before the lunch. Okay, hello. No, no. And I was chatting to him and I said, I said to my wife, and he said, Your wife? He said it like that. I said, Yeah. He said, But I've heard you speaking up for gays. I said, yeah. Well, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I said, so you thought I was gay? Well, well, yes. I said, fine. And I walked away. They're out there, these people. So in one yeah. week, I'm gay and Jewish. I then did uh, a comedy gig uh, with Ian Stone, mm -hmm. um, Alan Davis, yeah. and uh, who's the guy of the chase? Paul Cena. Yes, Cena. Yeah, the yeah. three of them. And I'm, you know, me, talk, talk, talk. And I told those two stories. When anybody came in after the evening, they all said, have you met our old mate, the gay Jewish comedian? <laughs> <laughs> Kenny Everett called me honorary gay, friend of the family. Yes, I've heard that. that That's lovely? lovely? That's lovely. And a rabbi in Northwood called me honorary Jew. I'm so happy about that. <laughs> Let, let's just talk a little <clears throat> bit more about the, the structure of jokes, because I think that will be something. There's a lot of uh, uh, very structurally obsessed comedy fans who listen to this podcast. Um, there was someone started a, a, a thread yesterday, I think, on the, the Facebook group associated with this show uh, saying, what are your, you know, asking other people in the in the community of listeners, what are the joke structures you're most tired of hearing? Because, you, you know, with repetition, and I think once you are a comedy fan, you can you start to identify the different structures. So one of them, for example, uh, that someone suggested is you'll, you'll hear a lot of a lot of stand ups at the moment doing a thing whereby you know every group of every group of friends has got one person who's xyz and if you're thinking i don't know which one it is it's you do you know what I mean? Like, oh, you, yeah, you're that, familiar with that, that sort, sort of structure. Of structure yeah. Exactly. And someone else, Paul Savage, mentioned, um, I think it's called the Lafton. Is it the, the, the Lafton or a Lofton? Which is um, uh, person X has just been slagging off thing Y. One of them is an outdated, you know, an outdated relic of something. You know, lots of you pile a lot of things ostensibly onto thing Y. And then you go, but the other one is thing Y. Oh, yes. Do you see what I mean? It's like I, 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 I've, I've butchered the, in the explanation, but I think you know the structure. No, you, I mean. you almost you know where it's coming. You know, yes, exactly. You got the you got the, the mechanism of exactly, it. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the mechanisms of jokes like that. Are they are there are there ones that you're well, you aware know, of or that you particularly enjoy or are tired? You said that great line years ago. Analyzing comedy is like dissecting a frog. Nobody laughs and the frog, and the frog dies. dies. E.B. White, I believe, said that. Yes. <laughs> yes, but the, but yes. This is the nature of the show, and people have turned, they're tuning in to hear the frog die. <laughs> yeah, analysing it uh, in the finish is a bit counterproductive, but I don't go in for a lot of analysis. I think it's just instinctive. You hope you've got it. If you haven't, you're in trouble. We just I don't really analyse it that much, but the basics, 
one, two, three is always perfect. The the tagline of a joke: A, B, C. That's yes. the, 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 that's uh, the, the classic. You know. Yes, because I think you need you need the first thing to so there is a thing. You need the second thing to establish an expectation, and then the third thing to subvert the expectation. Yeah. It'd be there's hard a, to imagine comedy working without. There's that. a lovely joke. Uh, a quite mild, diffident man went to a party without his wife and they played a game where you write a subject on a bit of paper, put it in a hat, you all draw from the hat and you have to speak on the subject you get. And this nice little guy pulls out a bit of paper, sex, and he does about 10 minutes about sex and makes everybody laugh. And he got home and his wife said, what was the party like? He said, oh, very good, very good. Played a game where you had to draw bits of paper out of a hat and you had a subject, you had to speak on his subject. What did you speak on? And his nerve failed him. He thought, her, I can't say that to her. And he said the first thing that came into his head, he said, yachting. She said, what? And that was that. The next day she went shopping. She met a woman who'd been at the party. And the woman said, your husband was very funny last night talking about his subject. She said, well, I don't understand. He's only done it twice. <laughs> First time he was sick, and the second time his hat blew off. <laughs> and he had to be winched off by helicopter. <laughs> Isn't that superb? That's lovely. And I think what, what's, what's so charming about that, like with the, that joke earlier about haven't you got a lovely home, yes. it, has, it has such a kind of charming... Um, the reveals in that joke. It has that, atmosphere. It has atmosphere, and it has such a gentle touch. You know, the, the second time his hat blew off. Oh. What a what a fantastically sort of eccentric and very British and sort of ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. First time he was sick. Fine, that's the setup. Sure. Second time his hat blew off, and you get a laugh. And had to be winched off by helicopter. It's just, oh. And there is something lovely about, look, not just economy of words, but also the word choice. There's something about the sounds of winched off by a helicopter. Yeah. The rhythm of it and the kind of the sounds involved in those words. Second time his hat blew off has a wonderful mental picture. Yeah, yeah. um, do Do you spend a lot of time on word choice when you're writing? Do you spend a yeah, lot of time? Yeah, uh, Oh, boy, this sounds glib. I just... I've been lucky. I think, I, in my own opinion, I latch on to the right word quite quickly. I hope. I hope. I could be wrong. You know, as you're getting into the mm-hmm. rhythm of something and you get... I do a lot of uh, poems, if I speak, of funerals, memorials and special occasions. We're doing a thing for Sylvia Anderson... You know, the great Sylvia Anderson, Thunderbirds. And oh, yes. That, OK, of course. Yeah. Uh, on Friday, and they've asked me to speak. So I've done a poem. So in the poem, you know, you really... It's rhyming couplets, basically, but you've got to get just the right words, you know. Mm. Then you've got to rhyme with them. Yes. And do you, do you feel... You must get asked... As you say, you get asked to speak a lot. Do you feel a certain pressure to give the audience what they expect. What what do you think an audience expects from Barry Cryer saying a few words? Uh, I'd, well, I'd, oh, they must think what they think. I wouldn't presume. The first reaction must be, by God, he's been around a long time. <laughs> he's quite awful. And, of course, I can do material that younger stand-ups could never do. 
The audience will go, oh, yeah, I bet he knows. You know, you can get onto yes. a subject. Yes, like uh, yes, I see Loss of memory and all that stuff. And they, get, they warm to you when you start talking about loss of memory. That, um, going back to the City Varieties, when my nerve went, I did two shows the following day. And I didn't bother sitting down, but I was still worried about, what, 20 minutes? So I got a card and wrote, you know, bullet words on the card. Don't con the audience. And I waved the card at the audience. I said, look at this. The old man's memory's going. <laughs> then they relax. Yes. Don't con them. Uh, yes. Edinburgh, Edinburgh Fringe last year, um, wearing light trousers, a mistake. And I spilled a cup of tea all over my crutch. I'm going on in front of the audience with a big stain on my crotch. You know, I thought, I'm not going to do the act crossing my legs and putting uh-huh. my hands down there. I just pointed at it and said to the audience, you spotted this, obviously. Old man, look where that is. Look, <laughs> cup of tea. You can either believe that or not. It happens to be the truth. Cup of tea. All right. They're relaxed. Yes. Then you do your act. So you're not worried about that stain anymore. You can't con the audience. That's a really good point. I think sometimes with certain very experienced acts, you can see, I'm thinking of Bob Mills. I saw Bob Mills, and I've, I've, I've told this on the show a couple of times, but I think it's apposite. Bob Mills once did, uh, I was emceeing for him, and he, he gave me a brilliant opening gag, which I'm sure I'll butcher here, whereby he walked on and he said, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for your MC. Very talented young man. In a couple of years, you're not going to be able to afford a ticket to see him. It got me a lovely round of applause. Then he said, you know why? You won't have jobs anymore. And it's, I mean, it's a fantastic yes. kind of one-two punch. The bump. Exactly. Yeah. But what, what I think part of why it was so successful is he tapped into, at the time, this was sort of recession time, yeah. Yes. Everyone was worried about it, and he <coughs> tapped into what everyone in the audience was actually thinking outside of the context of the gig. No, that's brilliant. That is really good, you know, get, giving the audience credit for getting the picture. Yes, absolutely. Alan Johnson, not a comic who's retired, you know, the best leader Labour never had. Yeah. I host the Oldie Magazine lunches. Have you ever heard of the Oldie Magazine? Yes, I have, yes. And the people you meet, nobody turns them down. It's just amazing. And I introduced the authors. And Alan had spoken to this audience before, and most of them of a certain age. And uh, Alan said, uh, oh, it's a great pleasure to be back. I can do a lot of the stuff I did last time, he said, because a lot of the audience have died and the rest of you wouldn't remember anyway. <laughs> but that, is, that really is the, the, the kind of... Um the benefit of experience, and I feel it a little bit in myself. The longer I've been a comic, the more I'm, I see younger comics, less confident comics, with a sort of who still have a whiff of desperation to make the audience laugh. Yeah. And I think part of the, the skill, part of the experience comes in knowing that if you can talk about the actual, the genuine circumstances of the show, yeah. what pe- you know, if you can do a joke about the parking outside, people key into that relate. they get that they Mark relate to it steals in town yes my mate yes. Mark, he is superb yes he's fantastic him and the producer have done their research and once he starts talking about the town on the radio you can hear the warmth of the audience this man knows what he's talking about yes it's brilliant Derry in Ireland with the history they've had of the horrors he's joking about that stuff I thought Mark you're on thin ice they're laughing 
and he can imitate a local accent. And I thought, don't do it, Mark. But no, <laughs> they laugh. He's doing this funny yes. accent in Derry, and they just laugh because he's won them over with he's the won research them over already. Because they, absolutely, they get that he's, he's done not, his homework. Yes, he knows yes. what he's talking about. Yes, he's not just walking on doing something he did somewhere else. So what are your what are your go-to jokes? What are you, what's your opener when you do an engagement now? If you do say an after dinner engagement, which well, I know you do a lot. Well, the after dinners have died out. Oh, they? really? They want to contemporary ones now. I've done JLA, the agency. I did a lot of after dinners for, and they invited me to the twenty-fifth anniversary party, and I said, "Oh, great!" And the guy said, "You, of course, invited you." We've done the math. You've done over a hundred for us through thirty years, twenty thirty years or something. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it just fascinating. What? But no, I hardly do. But when after dinners or lunches now. But I do gigs. I've got the radio series. Sorry, I'm a clue. We do a stage version of Sorry. I have yes, I've seen it. I've seen it. And uh, we played Colston Hall. Yeah. Thousands turn up. You can't believe what's happening. Yes, We're like an old rock band. It's been a few years. I saw I, but I, I maybe. Good Lord. I'm still getting the emails. So <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still on the mailing list. It must be five years ago I saw you. It's the O2 any minute, the way yeah. we're going. It's, uh, we're not complacent. We're just very happy about it. So, oh, yeah, and I, I do gigs with Ronnie Golden. I do gigs with mm -hmm. uh, Colin Sell at the piano. The two shows are totally different. The Ronnie Golden one is song-based. Yes. write all the songs. Yes. And uh, we've dropped the Trump song. The joke is over, in a way. <laughs> Verbally, just telling stories. I can talk about Trump, but we dropped the song because we played two fervent rednecks singing his praises in the song. Yeah, you tell them, bro, and all yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, but it's a joy. But with Col, it's more chat, chat, chat. And yes. He's not just a pianist. It's telepathy. Yes. He prompts me in front of the audience tell them that one about you know oh it's a joy and are you are you writing i mean if you say you've got a you have dropped a trump song that certainly suggests you're generating new material for oh, these yeah. tours because well, one could think the... after your career you could just you must have enough stuff at your fingertips you never oh, need yeah. to write another joke as long well, as you you, you hold the audience and it sparks you up as well put something new in make yourself a bit nervous about the new song or something uh this year we're doing edinburgh we do the fringe every year but at my age, and he's middle 60s now, we do two nights in the big debating hall at the Gilded Balloon in yes. Edinburgh. You know, you know the frantic atmosphere of the fringe. Mm -hmm. At my age, two great nights, come home. Yeah. I've done my two and three weeks. Ah, even the younger ones say, knackered, I want to go home. You know. I've just, a, a, a line has popped into my head that I think was from Two Old Farts in the Night, uh, which, okay. of which I had the VHS. From now on, it's downhill slowly on the bus. I remember that song. That's, that's one of those little, you know, you, you, a joke will stick in your head and then every time that yeah. situation occurs, it'll just pop back oh, into Oh, Willie Rushton, he was something. Well, now his wording... Oh, everything's linking up in a strange way. I just mentioned Derry. Will and I played Belfast in the really heavy days, and we had a wonderful time, but people said, if you walk in 10 yards, take a taxi. This is a heavy time, mm. and guns at the airport. and Oh, it was just amazing. And we stayed at the Europa Hotel, 
which had been blown up about three times. And uh, and I just say to an audience, Willie and I say that the Europa Hotel had been blown up about three times. On the check-in form, it said, how did you hear about this hotel? <laughs> and Willie put news at 10. <laughs> but Willie didn't put news at 10. He put nine o'clock news on the BBC. And I thought, no, news yes. at 10 is yes. later. Yes, yes. Sorry, Will. <laughs> news at 10. Do you think when we were talking earlier on, you, you said that some comics, comedians have funny bones and you never felt you were that person. Did you think Willie had funny bones? Oh, yes. He was an, it was a, a wit thing. It was, it was very strange, but he, he was a natural. The audience warmed to him because he could ramble, but he was naturally had a funny reaction to things. And he'd say, I'm not going to tell a joke, he said. Bazza does the jokes. I mean, I've got one here. It concerns an elephant and a bicycle, but where the lift full of Ugandan nuns comes in, I've no idea. <laughs> and it just make you laugh with nonsense like that. Well, I, I, something really struck me, and I think it was from, I was watching uh, an audience with Barry Cryer, and you quoted a Willie Rushton joke, which was, never go to a dentist who's got blood in Bloody his hair. <laughs> yes. Which, what I love about that is that that seems to me, that's one of the jokes that's completely outside the the sphere of what we're talking about. We're talking about kind of slot A, tab B jokes, yeah. word yeah. choice, punchline, resolution. Yeah. Whereas something like that, and that was Willie all over, yeah. was it would just be so left field, almost like... Um, like a Paul Merton joke when yes. Paul Merton was doing stand-up. It would be just so in the ether. Yeah. I'd find myself listening to a joke like that and thinking, I could never write a joke like that no. because I'm much more methodical. Yeah. Never go on holiday to countries where they still point at planes. <laughs> it's lovely stuff, isn't it? And do you think, were there any other styles of humour that you have coveted over your career? If you're aware of the types of humour that you write, have you seen other, other people with other well, styles of humour? Well, mentioned Idol, Jack Benny, that you just gets a laugh by a face, a reaction. That's right. Oh, who did I see last Saturday, Watford Coliseum? My mate, Count Arthur Strong. Yes, Steve, Steve Delaney, Delaney, yes. And he's not... He says himself, I'm Marmite. People think I'm either brilliant or rubbish. He said, I won't play arenas or anything. But the faithful turned up on Saturday night. That man is never rushed. You know, Count Arthur gets yes. confused and tangled. He'll stand there completely silent in front of the audience. And they're laughing because he's trying to think of the word and it won't come. <laughs> and it's superb. But, you know, I covet that. I could never do that. I'm restless get on to the next laugh and to see steve oh boy never off the stage sometimes ranting i think i said do you ever lose your voice he said yeah it gets a bit wobbly sometimes and it i just admire that so much i would covet that character thing of comedy mm. i would love to do that but i wouldn't be any good i, I don't think have you had you ever tried had you ever tried that kind of performance uh no, I wrote a thing once and it never happened. Uh, what was that? I thought I'll do a, a tribute show to W.C. Fields. Oh, yes. And I wrote it, wrote it out myself. And uh, then I just 
bottled out. I thought I can be funny as fields for two or three minutes, but I wouldn't subject the audience to a whole <laughs> Because, you know, I'm not an actor. I could do the voice. But I thought, no, forget it. It's very interesting to me to hear about the, the your perceived limitations in comedy as oh, someone who from so. from my side of the 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 breakfast table um you just have done it all and written for everyone written with everyone and have performed on stages for 60 years so to hear your idea of of the things you can't do i think is very fascinating yeah i suppose with the writing background as well as a performer i'm still part of my head is still a writer, so you're just going to do the story. You know what I mean? Yes. As I say, I, I, I tell stories and sing songs, so I'm not basically a comedian. <laughs> so, But you do do gigs, apart from your work with Colin and apart from your work with Ronnie yeah. and apart from the radio show, you do gig. You do turn up at comedy club type gigs? What, very what was, rarely. What was I the show you did with Paul Sinner? I don't Sinner? like working on my own anymore. Okay. Uh, and I very rarely get asked to work on my own. But I love being with Ronnie Golden, being with Colin Sell, and being with the gang. Oh, and I'm sorry I haven't a clue. Yes. Jack D and the gang. Yes. Uh, I, I don't like being on my own much anymore. I, I like the rapport with somebody on the stage with you. How much time do you spend preparing for an episode of Clue? Uh, well, it's, we don't know what each other's going to do. Uh-huh. You, you, you don't know. There's no script per se. There's a running order. We get advance notice of subjects and topics. And uh, Colin Sell, you have a quiet word with him, take you quickly through a tune if you're going to sing. But we don't know what each other's going to do. If you hear laughter, it's genuine. Because we, I always say the show's at its best when it's falling apart, when it gets chaotic. Yes. And it's Graham Garden. Who devised it? Because I they, only learnt that this week. I, I never realised he was the devisor of the show. I'm sorry, I'll read that again. Was mm. on the radio. Then they got lucky. Graham always says that. Graham Bilotti and uh, John Cleese and uh, Tim Rutel started doing telly and everything. And the BBC wanted another radio series. Mm. So Graham thought, "Oh, a chaotic." so-called quiz of panels show that doesn't really need a script as such. And he devised, sorry, I haven't a clue. And uh, when it started, it wasn't regarded as a proposition at all. And some genius said, Humphrey Littleton was the chairman, mm. and the, you know, the suit said, no, he does jazz, that's not... And, of course, we know what happened. It yeah. was just uh, brilliant. But it was Graham's idea. But then when we were going to do the stage show, the BBC said, you can't use the title. It's, you know, we own the title. Graham hadn't registered it or anything. Okay. A lot of young ones now, as you know, own their show mm -hmm. quite right. And uh, I'm talking to a journalist before we'd done the first stage shows. And he said, what's all this about a stage show? And I went, blah, blah, blah. And I said, the BBC say we can't use the title. And he took his pen out. Oh, it was all over the papers. And they backed off. But we're still the bad boys. Yes. They don't like us touring. They want to lock us into London. And we like going to a town and meeting people. And yes, like of course. Us. And, oh, no, they, and they, all the double entendres and surmounted the scorer. We've had 
a complaint, you know. They have yes, that. I mean, it's the the jokes about Samantha are very much of their time, yes. and I think part of why. I can't imagine it being offensive, really, to anyone, despite how outrageously sexist it is. Yes. Is there is something about the tone of it and the fact that you, as the people making the joke, are inherently vulnerable due to your sort of fustiness. Yeah. Also, John Nysmith, our brilliant producer, he had this, not long since, oh, a complaint, a singular. Uh. So he goes to see whoever it was with Jack D., so this woman thinks, oh, <laughs> taking the heavies around. <laughs> Plus an old friend of ours, the agent, Emma Darrell. He takes a woman who says, I think the surmounted jokes are hilarious. And John said, for your information, he said, she is the dominant figure. Samantha is the dominant figure in every reference to her. She's not being put upon. Yes, yeah, well, that's a good point, absolutely. So, oh, he's great, Naismith. I'll say an archaeologist found his heels once. <laughs> they dig in. You don't push Naismith. And, of course, the stage show is nothing to do with the BBC. Yes. It's owned by John and Graham, who have a company I called see. Random. Okay. So we're independent, so okay. they don't like that. Yes. We're cashing in on that. And say, no, but you're cashing in and we're promoting the radio. Of course you are, absolutely. You're, uh, you know, good Uh, Lord. Getting very nostalgic, sorry. In the old days, uh, in television and radio and all that, you had bosses like Bill Cotton at the BBC, Lou Grade at ITV. They were showmen. They'd worked with performers, they'd been performers themselves, probably. Mm. Nowadays, no. You get people pronouncing on comedy who've never done comedy. You know what I mean? What's that? Yes, it's interesting. I wonder if there's almost a parallel there with the way that politicians now, you have a lot of people who studied politics at university and only did politics and then became politicians. have gone straight into politics. gone straight into it. It's almost something similar with people who studied production and went straight into being a producer without having had a lot of experience yeah. of actual performance. Well, I'm an old idealist. I don't think anybody should be allowed in politics uh, a minimum of five years. They've had a real life and a proper job. Yeah. Alan Johnson was a postman and then went into union and then went into politics. The man had had a life. He'd had a yes. real job. Yeah. Whereas the Camerons and people. Oh, um, the Oldie magazine did Oldie of the Year earlier on this year, and as a joke, they gave David Cameron's mother an award for saying, allegedly, I think she's denied it, Jeremy Corbyn should wear a tie and a suit and stand up for the national anthem. So the Oldie magazine went, Mum knows best. <laughs> so she turns up. Cameron turned up with his mother. Good Lord. At this lunch. Okay. So I thought, game on, I don't care now. And I went over and they're chatting away. And I tapped him on the shoulder and he turned round. I'd never met the man. Oh, hello. I said, could you keep the noise down? There's been complaints. And his mother laughed and he was blank. <laughs> oh, oh, oh that, that was a joke. Was it? Oh, Jesus. These moments. His mother laughed straight away. Oh, dear. I love these moments in life that are a dead giveaway. Like the man who said to me, your wife... In that moment, yes. you get somebody's attitude, don't yes. you? Yes, yes. Of what, um, 
of what can you think of a particular moment from I'm sorry I haven't a clue or a particular line that you are most proud of is there anyone that sticks in your mind as as being oh that's well, the one that I did yeah no I erased my stuff it's other people's stuff I remember no I can't is there, you can't you can't think of a I mean I can probably I can think of several but I think there's I'm just interested from the point of view of okay let me ask the question a different way of which joke are you most you know we were saying a joke has to be surprising and yet satisfying can you think of something from your oeuvre where you thought that's it that's the one I've done it put the pen down you know what people are fond of saying on stage I took the afternoon off when I wrote that one is is there a particular one that really satisfied you there's a line I still do I did it in Worthing on Sunday and you've got to choose the right adjective. I say, it's a very emotional night for me. I met my wife in Worthing. And I thought she was at home with a kid. <laughs> That's all it is. But you've got to get the right adjective. You can't say, I'm delighted to be in Worthing. I met yes. my wife. You've got to get an ambiguous word. Like, it's a very emotional night for me. Yes. And then you go... Thought she was at home with a kid. Now, to me, that is a joke. I, I feel like I know when I've written a good joke if I think, ah, oh, someone could steal that. If yeah. I've written something that's, and it's only happened once or twice in my, in my career. Oh, the other but, one I, I, I thought of for myself, I still do, is, uh, yeah, my name's Barry Cryer, in case anybody's looking at me thinking, by God, Brad Pitt's looking rough these days. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to pick the right name, you see, as well, yes. Brad Pitt. Yes. It's, it's, oh, uh, here we go. Jokes. And I'll fill in the background after I've told you the joke. Uh-huh. I love the casting. Angelina Jolie, Tom Sum and Quasimodo are having a drink. What about a star? Let me, let me, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. I listened to this, you telling this one on YouTube and oh, it yes. cuts off before the punchline, so I'm thrilled yes. to hear it. <laughs> before the punchline. There we go again. What do they know, these people? Anyway, the three of them talking. And they, Angelina Jolie said, they say I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. And Tom Tom says, they say I'm the smallest man in the world. And Quasimodo says, I say, I'm the ugliest man in the world. And he decides, we'll have a laugh. We go to the Guinness Book of Records, get ourselves in the book officially if we can. So they go for their interviews, and Angelina comes out beaming. I am now officially the most beautiful woman in the world. Tom Tom comes out and says, I've cracked it. I'm officially the smallest man in the world. Quasimodo goes in, comes out. Who's Alan Sugar? (laughs) (laughs) Now... Alan Sugar isn't particularly ugly, but he's the ideal name. Yes, okay. Yes. When I first heard that joke, here's the background. The tagline was, who's Robin Cook? Okay. And I admired Robin Cook. He res- I met him at an old magazine lunch. He resigned over uh, Iraq. Yes. Uh, I thought, he's not the right name for that joke. It, I never told it in the old days. But then somebody reminded me of that joke, and I thought, no, it needs recasting. Mm. I thought, Alan Sugar. Yes. And it works every time. Don't analyse. You say, who's Alan Sugar? Laugh. Yes. So there's something that the audience latch on to. Do you ever, do you ever have tough gigs? Did you ever, when you were doing After Dinner, did you ever oh, have yes. rocky sort of shows? Oh, yes, yes. When you, well, you just keep moving. 
<laughs> That's... moving as if no, that, that wasn't the joke. Now is one. Yes. Okay. Yes. And somebody told me recently. I never noticed. If Arthur Askey ever did a line that didn't get a laugh, mm-hmm. Arthur would go. <laughs> Yes, okay. his hands and then immediately into another line before the audience had time to realise that line didn't get enough. I love, I love hearing little techniques like that. So well, oh, the other thing is, uh, Lonnie Donegan, the great skiffle guy, here we go again, the good old days, City Varieties Musical. Uh-huh. Lonnie had now moved into the mainstream. My wife did a pantomime that he was in, and he's on this old-time musical and, of course, being a good professional, he's learnt an old song. Uh, and then we'd row, 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 right up the river we would row, row, row. And he's on the, the show. And he introduced, he goes on, and he's wearing a blazer and he's got a straw boater hat. And he's singing the song. This is visual for our standards. <laughs> but as he's singing the song, he's looking into his hat. And you think... You know, the audience were clicking in a bit. He's got the words in his hat. <laughs> so that was that. And he goes off to applause. And then the chairman, Leonard Sachs, introduces Arthur Askey. Da, 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 da. And Arthur comes on. His opening line. What about that Lonnie Donegan with the words in his hat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Arthur was something. There are, there are so many little kind of tips and techniques that you, you pick up over the years, or, or the, even if they're not real, you kind of hear of them spoken about. Like someone told me that a, a common thing an American comic will do is to point the mic at the audience, just lazily let the mic flop at the audience at the end of a punchline, yeah. and that increases the likelihood of them giving you a round of applause. Yeah, oh, do you know things like that? Body language, yeah, yeah, body language moments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just wondered whether there were any any other things like that. I'm really fascinated hearing from your from your experience, little things that you've noticed people doing. Tommy Cooper was the first one I saw do it. I'm sure it was a classic line. If something. He said, went well. Or if there was a, you know, some bit of applause or something, mm. you just look off and say, who's just come on? <laughs> As if somebody else had come on the stage. Tommy used yes, to do that. Yes, Oh, and then Tommy's one about, oh, moment you walk on the stage, you can tell so, what sort of an audience you've got to be. Good night and stuff yeah. and walk off. <laughs> he had a load of those. Oh, gosh. I think my favourite Tommy Cooper joke was the um, uh, throwing cards into a hat. Do you know that bit? He's throwing cards into a hat and he can't get any of them in. He goes, there we go, missed. There we go, missed. If I can't get this right, I'm going to go off stage and I'm going to shoot myself. Throws it, missed. Right. Walks off stage from the side, you know, from the wings you yes. hear, bang. He walks back on, missed. It's just lovely. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. <laughs> missed, missed, missed. Oh, he's... But Tommy was so meticulous. I mean, every stumble was... I used to watch him before a show or television or something, uh, checking the prop. Oh, I walked past his prop table one afternoon. Everything was quiet. There was a piece of paper on the props table. Cards, front, right, bottle, mm-hmm. down, left, jug, at the back. It was all noted on a bit of yes. paper. And was his performance the same from night to night? Yeah, it was immaculate. He made it seemed like chaos but he didn't ad-lib much he made it seem chaotic Frankie Howard oh no, no, no don't take a vote on it and all that 
first time I wrote for Frank, uh, I put, ooh, do, don't take a vote of it. Now, look here, Mrs. He said, don't put those in. I do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if the writer didn't put those in, he'd say, where's the... Really? Don't take a vote on it. He used to play games with writers. Yes, OK. OK. But Frank rehearsed every syllable of that little... <laughs> all that waffle. So was there anyone that you, for whom you wrote that you or for whom you tried to write that you you felt you couldn't get their voice because obviously part of your skill is in being able to write material appropriate well, uh, to the uh, voice a man who became a friend larry grayson yes uh who took over as you know from bruce generation game they did a it may have been a special or the first of a series they did a larry grayson show and i was one of the writers and they didn't use a word i'd written and the only time in my life i rang up and said could you take my name off the credits? Because I didn't write a single word in this show. Really? And they took my name off the credits. And Larry and I were friends, but I couldn't get hold of him. And why, why was that, I don't that, know do why. Think, no? I'd written for Frankie Howard and Dunny LaRue. Yes. I couldn't... Well, I, maybe... I'm trying to be objective. Maybe I had written something good for him, but he didn't feel it. Yes. So if he didn't feel it, he shouldn't do it. And did you ever have any ego about that? If you... <laughs> no. No? no. Is it, I mean, it, sound, it sounds no, from no, what you're saying no. like I you... I thought, well, I, I hadn't made it here. You know, I'm having a good time elsewhere, so what's the problem? Mm. But I didn't want my name on the credits. I thought, that's not fair. And how were you in the room when, in any writing room, when you suggest a thing and it gets nothing? Can you bounce back from that very quickly or does that hurt? No, I mean, you'd make a remark to cover it or everybody <laughs> would laugh because he hadn't got a laugh or something. No, yes. it never worried me, no. The social atmosphere, generally speaking, was terrific. That is a difference in generations. All the shows I worked on, the last show I wrote for was years ago, <laughs> Ross Abbott, and we took the job seriously, but whenever we were rehearsing, we were laughing a lot. Mm-hmm. There was an atmosphere. And years ago, what's this, the young ones, what's that? Oh, Rick Mail, this is interesting. And uh, somebody smuggled me in quietly into the studio while they were rehearsing. No laughs. Very intense atmosphere. I thought, I'll loosen up a bit. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, when, when you came from... Um when you came from a, a culture of comedy whereby you were writing material, but the, the comedy stars, I suppose you were at the tail end of the kind of... I was a bridge generation. Yes. I was very lucky because I worked with Ted Ray, Arthur Askey, Max Miller. <laughs> oh, boy, you're superb. And, and all that, Tommy Trinder. But then gear change and you're into a frost era and... You know what I mean? Yes. I, I'm so grateful that the, the serendipity of it, I was a bridge. I'd, yes. I'd been with the old ones, and now I'm with the newer lot. It was a great period, that, the change. Because Frost, that kind of the Frost era was the bridge between the those older acts and then the birth of alternative comedy. That's Frost right. was kind of pre-alternative comedy. That was the week that was, uh, which was him anyway. Mm. Uh, and then the, the Frost shows. Uh, yeah, Frosty was amazing. I mean, two series 
a week, one in England, one in America. Is he that lived right? on Concord. Okay. And we used to call it his just off the plane face. <laughs> Grey as porridge. And then clicked in immediately. I mean, what chat show host, TV personality, helped to bring down an American president? Yes, yes. Did in, you see the film? Did you see the Michael Sheen oh, film? Oh, yes, yeah. I saw it on the stage as well, the uh-huh. play. And uh, Frosty was amazing. We used to do a joke about David. He had an open-top convertible car, and we said if it started raining, David pressed a button on the dashboard, and it stopped raining. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he was something, Frosty. His memory. My phone number, you know, (laughs) I'll have to beat that out. (laughs) Yes. and then in successive years, I didn't see him much. I'd bump into him once or twice a year. Whenever I met David Frost, he went, <laughs> got a computer in his head. Yes. I always remembered where he last met you, your wife's name, your partner's name, what you were doing when he last met you. Amazing memory the man had. Did you, what sort of a relationship did you have with the new alternative comics? Well... I always say that I think I did it unconsciously. Ted Ray, Arthur Askey and Max Miller and people like that treated me as a mate. They didn't treat me as some young oik who's this young one. And I hope I'm the same now. I'm fascinated. Every generation has got talent. So I like the young ones, you know. I, like, I want to know what's happening. I like talking about the past. I don't want to live there. I like the young scene. I've just been listening to uh, News Quiz, the uh-huh. extended version, because I missed it last week. You know, and Holly Walsh and Andrew Maxwell was on superb form. And no, it's different to what we did. It's now observational and my view on what's happening, and, but the wit and the style. Yes. And I hate people of my generation who say, oh, oh they all swear, don't they? I say, name one. You've just generalised, name one. They can never name anybody. Just go, oh, no, they all say fuck. No, they don't. Yes. It's interesting. You you really do hold a position of elder statesman. That's within, what I do. Within now. the comedy. So you're still very connected to the industry. The well, fact doing, that you can... Doing the Fringe every year and playing uh, the venues with Ronnie Golden and there'll be somebody else on with us and everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. I'd just like to know what's happening now. The great Arthur Askey said, every generation's the same. Load of crap and a few brilliant people. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur wanted to know what was going on. And the writers, Colton and Simpson, we've just lost Alan yes. Simpson, Muir and Norton, these were my idols. But when I met them, they just treated you as another writer. They didn't, who's this then? And I never forgot that. You became a major there very early on. When, it was a camaraderie. When you said there were, they, that when you named these particular writers that were your idols, what was it about them that attracted you to them specifically? Well, I mean, it was the, the wordplay. Muir and Norton were just so witty and stylish. The use of words. I thought that was brilliant. That was radio, of course. Radio was king, you know. Uh, and then... Ray and Alan, of course, for heaven's sake, Tony Hancock, Radio Series and Telly, and then, you know, and uh, uh, Steptoes and things. I thought that was character. There weren't jokes in there. 
in their scripts. You know, then I thought, what is this? It's wonderful. And did you ever, I know you contributed to lots of different shows in different guises, worked with other people. Did you have your own sitcom projects in your back pocket that you were trying to get made? Well, David Frost, the practising catalyst, (laughs) (laughs) he was brilliant with people. And Graham Chapman had always, obviously, was writing with John Cleese. Frosty spotted Graham and I become mates and put us together as writers. We'd never thought about that. We wrote over 50 shows together, me and Graham Chapman. And we wrote sitcoms for Ronnie Corbett before Sorry, which was written by my mates in... Yes, I remember Sorry when I was a kid, yeah. And, uh, but we were... We were the birth of Ronnie Corbett in sitcom. Graham and I write two or three series for uh, Ronnie Corbett. So uh, that was Frost again, you see. You just Me and Graham had never thought of writing together. But but that, isn't, that, isn't that quite unusual for a, for a writer that you wouldn't have your own origination, like your own concept that you'd sort of trying to push and hammer out and going, there we go, this is the... Yeah, no, we were, you were writing for a client, you know. Yeah. We were writing for Ronnie Corbett, who's coming through on Frost shows and everything, mm. and what we're going to do with Ron, you know. We were saying about Mock the Week being competitive. That's sort of the benchmark for a competitive comedy environment. For, as I understand it, in the last couple of years, the, the, the cast have sort of changed over. And without Frankie Boyle and Russell Howard on it, who I think yeah. were the most, you know, Frankie was just the sort of sniper. And Russell had so much energy, he was always trying to sort of yeah. wedge bits in. Um, I think the culture of it has now become much more friendly and supportive. Yes, yeah. I found it, Dara, who I know, mm. uh, Dara and I were chatting one day and I said, I know you and I know Andy and I know Hugh. And I said, it's the format's not for me. He said, I understand, but it's all right. Mm. You're not the first to say that. Yes. i tell you what I did admire recently. Uh, Rob Bryden, who's a mate, played the bottom of the road here at the Elliot Hall. And he gave the audience a real show, but I could tell what he was doing. He was doing tryout, but he didn't announce the audience he was doing tryout. Okay. But you could feel him changing gear in his head and going into a bit. And I said to him afterwards, you gave him a full show. He did own up at the end. He said, I've been trying stuff out tonight, hence the reasonable prices. (laughs) (laughs) You can't chuck charge an audience to watch you do you, what do you think of this bit yes no. yes well and I, rob never told them but he gave him a proper show yes rob brighton has done some of them i remember seeing him at edinburgh i, I must have been 12 13 years ago doing a show it was in his the character of the chauffeur character from marion and jeff yeah and he did a show and the show was in the form of a talk called making divorce work which is uh, just so brilliant um a huge, great room, and he was. And I remember thinking at the time, it's quite unusual to see him live because I associated him far yes, more with TV yeah. and character stuff. And he sort of brought with him this amazing live act sensibility. Yeah, I said to him, I accused him, and he's a good friend. I said, "You were the actor, brilliant voice man. You didn't start as a natural stand-up, but you've studied it, haven't you?" But Having said that, talk about the funny bones. He'd studied stand-up, 
and could really do it, but still had an instinctive funny thing in him, so that was okay. Yes. But his background wasn't that at all. It was acting and voices. Yes. Well, he's well known, isn't he, for being able to do... He can sort of pinpoint a Welsh accent to the almost to the street. Oh, yeah. That's an incredible yeah. skill. But uh, Ross, I've seen Ross Noble recently. The energy, Jesus. <laughs> I went round to see him afterwards, wasn't it? I am knackered, and I mean that's a compliment to <laughs> you. Well, I think Ross Noble, as a comedian, lives a charmed life because he never needs to sit and do any writing. No. He'll sit, and we, I, I had him on the show, he's he a listener. He seemed to be doing, he, uh, well, you know, there's good stuff in his head. Of course, of course. He seemed to, his whole show just seemed to be riffing off the audience. Yes, and he, he actually released a DVD where he showed you, he'd recorded the same tour show so the same show but not the same content four different times from the tour and released all four of them together as a dvd of the tour so you could see that he wasn't just doing the same thing every time oh it's that's amazing. incredible that's incredible a, the physical energy you know i just stand or sit my generation the bounding about the stage that a lot of them do the physical energy and the mental energy of change gearkly yes i've remembered her name ah ooh, ah ooh, you know are there any are there any um, new comedians at the moment? You mentioned the Holly Walsh and Andrew Maxwell, who I, we will have to refer to as a new comedian, only in the context of your, <laughs> your That's experience. That's a good Welsh name, Maxwell, isn't it? <laughs> um, but are there any other new comedians that you're especially excited by at the moment? Have you seen anyone oh, recently? I, I, I Pippa Evans did our radio show, and uh, Ronnie Gold and I have done two... Charity gigs with her. Pippa, yes, I'm proud to say I'm podcasting well, she's her on Friday. Improv. Yes, and boy, can she sing? Yes. Oh no, she is terrific. Sue Kalman's become a mate. Yes, and uh, more women about than ever. Uh-huh. Like we were saying, lots of women in sight on Joker's Wild. Different world now, as you know. Mm-hmm. Women comedians everywhere. Oh, it's it's brilliant. Um, oh dear, no, names, names. No, yes. no, that's okay. Um, what was, this is something, this is a, a, a new question that I'm going to add to my bag of uh, uh, standard questions. What was the first act that you copied? Do you remember like when you started, I remember talking to Jeremy Hardy about this and he started, uh, he said that apparently Norman Lovett had to have a bit of a word with him and said, you, you're doing me. Yes. <laughs> you need to find your own voice. Oh, was there an equivalent thing when you well, first radio, started? Radio was king. Uh, I think unconsciously I absorbed Arthur Askey and Ted Ray. And da, 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 line, line, line. And I've seen that. a tiny bit of Arthur Askey, mostly on Joker's Wild, I have to say. So for people like myself who don't know, I know the name and I know the, 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 the sense of the icon of Arthur Askey, but what was it? What was the quality that he had that particularly w- was him-ish? He made it sound as if he just thought of it. Okay. Whatever he said. Sounded like an ad-lib and wasn't. Yes, okay, okay. He had that immediate rapport. And as I say, turning to the camera, he spoke to you at home. Mm-hmm. It's like they said uh, in a radio context, Terry Wogan met the Queen and the Queen said, how many listeners have, do you have now? He said, one. <laughs> meaning I'm just talking to one person at home. Yes, yes. And that gift, and Chris Evans spoke at uh, Terry's memorial and said, what's it all about, Terry? Really, our game, radio. And Terry Wogan said, 
They either like you or they don't. Sum it up in one line. Yes. But it's true. Yes. That warmth thing. Certain comedians are technicians and do line, 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 but they haven't any warmth. And if the warmth factor is in there as well, it doesn't mean you necessarily do cosy material. Mm -hmm. My friend Omid, Omid Jalili, mm -hmm. uh, did, played Ricelip recently. I went to see him locally here. And uh, at one point, getting really worked up, he bellowed, bloody Jews! And the audience laughed because, A, they liked him, and B, they knew he was talking about prejudice. Yes. So on paper, cold, bloody Jews. Good God, you wouldn't say that in front of an audience, but that's the gift that some yes. performers have in the context. Yes. It's funny. It's about the relationship with the audience, isn't it? The audience kind of lends him their permission because they, they feel they know him. Yes. He's taken them in. They know where he's coming from. And he's big and expansive. And, oh, oh it's, it's amazing. You can have the same joke or material done by two different performers. You know this. And once it dies and the other one does it, you think, oh, that is funny, actually. Yes, yes. yes because of the personality and, oh, the timing. And, and I know all that. But it's to do with the person who the audience know where you're coming from. So coming back to this idea of when you wrote with other people, when you wrote for, say, Jasper Carrot or Kenny Everett or some of these sort of names, did you have to, as well as you, you said, kind of like speaking in Eric Morecambe's voice yeah. in order to sort of get, get yes. in order to grab hold yeah. of the, to catch the tiger by the tail, did you have to try and kind of breathe your way into their relationship yeah. with an audience? Usually... Almost invariably, for various reasons, the people I wrote for, I'd already got to know. they become friends. I knew yes. Eric and Ernie long before I wrote for them. Okay. Everett I'd met around about. And I, knew. I wrote the Everett shows with Mike McIntyre's father, mm. Ray Cameron. Okay. I knew Mike when he was a little boy. Okay. So if you know people, it helps. <laughs> A young actress interviewed years ago. This is true. And it got onto this subject of a film she'd made which had a nude axe murder scene in it. <laughs> an awful moment in an interview. And she said rather nervously, it's all done at the best possible taste. And I told Everett, who laughed immoderately, and Ray Cameron. So we thought, here we go again. We just sort of gave Everett the idea. Yes. And, and what... Who, Who's the character who would say this? And Cupid was born. Him and Drag with a beard. Yes. And when he was young, he saw a comedian called Old Mother Riley, uh -huh. a drag act who used to cross her legs violently when she was speaking. Okay. And he never forgot that. So that was the instinct, you see, someone like Everett had. It's all done in the best possible taste, and he crosses his legs. Yes. And then he did a Parkinson show. And he was Cupid at the beginning of the show. Then he went off, changed, and came back on as Kenny Everett later. And Parky said to me, I want to introduce her properly. Has she got a full name? I said, yes, Cupid Stunt. <laughs> he said, thank you very much. <laughs> I'll have to rehearse that. I don't want to blow that in front of the audience, yeah. he said. Oh, boy. 
That is interesting that hearing the kind of the assemblage of something that became such a well-known and well-loved character. Yeah. That it's like a catchphrase from there, an idea from there, the spirit of something else like from Tommy there. It's like Tommy Cooper. You gave Everett just an idea and mm-hmm. he ran with it. Mm-hmm. I used to invent the names like Cupid Stunt and Mary Hinge. That was a... <laughs> tasteful one the lady from the BBC I, I was uh, I was very young when I watched it I've only just got that joke yeah. <laughs> Sheila Stiefler's Mary Hinge and I would do the names but Kenny and Ray came up with Sid Snot and Mr Pompous that's nah, not funny and then I had to back off because it was yes yes oh what was the oh dear what was the other character oh uh, Oh, dear, with his Mohican haircut and everything. I don't remember the name. Oh, he didn't work by halves. He was playing this character and he head-butted a camera. <laughs> he was taken to A&E, he was bleeding forehead. Oh, it'll come to me, it'll come to me. That It's really interesting, the pairing of you with Kenny Everett seems a particularly unusual yes. pairing. Yeah. In terms of, I don't know why I think that, maybe just because you're... He'd, would... had, two, he'd had adventures. Uh, he did Nice Time, I think, with uh, Jermaine Greer and, oh, dear, names, names, Granada. Uh, then he did uh, a series at London Weekend, and he wasn't happy, so he thought, I've had television. His great love was radio, as you know, anyway, so he went back to radio. And then uh, Philip Jones who was head of Thames Television, said to his son one day, who's not on television now, you think, should be? And his son said, Kenny Everett. Mm. So they got Kenny in. Ray and I had met on Joker's Wild, and Ray and I got involved early on. And uh, that was a very happy era. Thames Television, recording all day, no audience. Wow. If you heard... And in laughter, it was the crew. Yes. I never asked them to laugh, that'd be insulting. But it was the only show I worked on where nobody said quiet. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the crews fought to get on it. They loved working with him. Oh, how lovely. And the difference, when we crossed over to the BBC, it was rehearsal all week, audience coming in on Friday night. Uh-huh. Ooh, they're here, said Everett. And it became brilliant with the studio audience. That's another story. But the difference in attitude... Uh, BBC tried to turn him into a BBC comedian. Yes. No, he was Kenny Everett. And the anarchy of the Thames shows, uh, we lost it. Uh, we did his gospel singer, Brother Lee Love, <laughs> uh, with his big polystyrene hands and a gospel trio behind him at Thames. Uh-huh. And uh, then he sh- dropped his hands off and he got hold of the camera by the autocue box, turned it round showing a dusty floor with coffee cups and somebody running out of the shot and said, ooh, the glamour of it all, <laughs> which we kept in the show. So we're then doing a thing at the BBC, and I didn't tell Bill Wilson, our producer, I said to him, do the camera thing again. So he came down the way and he got hold of the camera and turned it round and ooh, the glamour of it all. Got we've done it, right. And Bill Wilson came down from the gallery and said, that's a very funny bit. Could we do it again? There was a bit of a shadow on Kenny's face. <laughs> I said, we do tacky, Bill. You mean it looked real? Oh. Difference in attitudes. Yes. And, but the difference between your attitude and Kenny's is presumably part of the 
the the kind of the creative drive behind something like this that he's the sort of wild man whereas yes. you were a more kind of i don't want to say um uh uh disciplined yeah disciplined <laughs> i was trying not to use the word establishment because i don't mean no, establishment. That's true. but you gave everett an idea and he ran with it yes that was the joy of it you could give him a few notes on a bit of paper and he'd get a whole picture of oh yes so is there is there some quality that you recognize in each of these sort of funny bones slash genius, do you know what I mean? People like Everett and people like Eric Morecambe. Is there, is there some quality that they share? Well, you've just said it. I can't go beyond that. Right. Funny bones. Yes. It's indefinable in the finish. You don't quite know what it is, but it's there. And you've either got it or you haven't. It's... And you were saying earlier on, you don't consider yourself to be a funny bones no, comedian, not do in the, I don't consider myself a comedian. I, I know a funny line or a funny joke when I spot it, but I still don't know to this day whether I'm a naturally funny man. I love making people laugh, but I, it's for other people to say whether I'm a funny man or not. <laughs> Is there any frustration in that for you, as someone no. who's worked with a lot of no, people that remotely. we call geniuses? No, no. no been dogged by good luck all my life <laughs> and so well this is my next question gizzard puke was the name gizzard. <laughs> of the character played by kenny fantastic timing the camera <laughs> and quentin pose everybody's forgotten him everett's favorite character the quietest character he ever played and we thought of this character for him and he loved it and quentin would talk about life very seriously, without a single funny line. And then he would say, and yet... And that was it. <laughs> he never finished what he was going to say. And it was, he was our favourite character, not the viewer's favourite, but ever, Everett loved doing it. And yet... Did you get from your career everything that you wanted? I got more than... More than I wanted or expected. I was pitchforked into the business... Uh, I had a half-baked idea of being a journalist or something, but Blue Eyes got to university and blew it, and I'm BAing it failed. And But I was a, in a student show uh, at the Old Empire Theatre in Leeds. A guy came up to Leeds to see somebody, not me, offered me work. Suddenly I'm in show business. So I thought, oh, I like this. I'd, no plans to... No ambition to be in show business at all. So, I, yeah, I just think, you know... I, I will say, dog by good luck, you find you're in the right place at the right time. You can't plan that. And I suppose... So I, I've got further than I ever expected. Oh, yes. That's so lovely to hear. I wonder if it's... If, if the, the sort of determination or ambition or lunacy frequently that is associated with the, the more kind of... Um, uh, people, people like Everett, you know, big stars, people yeah, who kind yeah. of really tore after something, saw what they wanted and, and, and went for it. I suppose if you kind of fell into the business and went, well, this is fun, I'm enjoying this and this is good luck and I'm in the next thing, you were never troubled by that sort of ambition? No. I've been asked this a lot now, being older. I think, did I ever have an ambition? My ambition was to be uh, married with children. My dad died when I was five, 
So I'm very envious this day when somebody says, my dad, my father. Hmm. My brother was away in the Merchant Navy. He's met my mother at home. And uh, that was the only ambition I had. I'd love to be married with children. And we had four, and we've got seven grandchildren. We're about to have a great-granddaughter. So that was that. Was that. And if you're making a living as well, that's a bonus, isn't it? <laughs> if you're being paid for doing something you enjoy... Shut up. I'm going to say (laughs) that is advice that would be could be readily followed by me and very many of my guests, I'm sure. What what were the we'll just do another we'll do another few minutes if you're all right with that. I'm Um, I'm enjoying myself. (laughs) What do you think were the milestones in your career the moments that you went that changed me that like a, or, or not even a, not even a milestone in terms of achievement but maybe no. a, a moment of learning where you thought oh hang on this is how it works this is how i do well i referred to being spotted in a student show the other thing was uh i wrote for an actress anna quayle in a theater show what we used to call reviews sketches songs and and a couple of sketches for my friend Anna. And Danny LaRue, who was a massive star at the time, came in the theatre and said, who wrote that? As a result, I wrote Danny LaRue's nightclub shows and was in them and met Ronnie Corbett. And then Danny had his famous club in Hanover Square. David Frost came in one night and invited me and Ronnie Corbett for a drink. As a result, Ronnie Corbett went into the Frost Report programme and I became a Frost writer these moments you're in the right place at the right time maybe david frost had come in anyway to invite me and ronnie for a drink you don't know but the times of my life i seem to be in the right place at the right time you can't plan that it seems to me that the life you have the life you have in comedy being a regular on i'm sorry i haven't a clue it seems like a dream job, a dream yes, come true. Is. Like to, to, with the gang, I can't like wait you to said. to get there and uh, start laughing with the gang. That's so lovely. I don't think I've got a question about that. I'm, just, I'm just gleeful on your behalf. <laughs> when, when Humphrey Littleton died, we said, that's it. And it's over. Hmm. And we didn't do it for a year. Then the BBC wanted us back. And we did six shows, two with Stephen Fry, who'd done the programme, but he was almost too knowing as the chairman. Yes. Two with Rob Bryden, who was excellent. He did it when Humph went into hospital. And two with Jack D, who hadn't done radio, really. And we went, oh, it's got to be him. Detached and sarcastic. I saw one of those too. I yeah. remember seeing one and of those. Years later, uh, not years later, the early days of Jack... And I was there two weeks ago, the Rose Theatre, Kingston, in Surrey. In the middle of a recording, a man in the audience said very loudly, not the same without Humphrey Littleton, is it? Terrible silence. And Jack said, ah, dear Humph, wonder where he is now. I envy him. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Style, to defuse the moment. Yes, yes. He's brilliant. And he got the hang of radio so quickly... He said to me once, he said, I'm loving this. He said, I'm with a gang. He took the job on very modestly. He said, I can't fill those shoes. I'll try and do the job. But he got the hang of radio very quickly. In the middle of a recording, he said, Barry. I said, yes, Jack. He said, your dressing gown's hanging open. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a lovely radio joke? <laughs> 
Oh, he's he's joy, and he laughs a lot, which is bad for his image. Yes, you can't see that on radio. Yes. Did you ever? Did you read your reviews when you were doing Edinburgh shows? Did you? Did you read reviews when you were the critical reviews of your shows? We don't get reviewed a lot now, Ronnie Gold and I, because we've done it for so many years. (laughs) So we're safe. Yeah. We do the business. He said boastfully, "We sell out, which is lovely." But no, we don't get reviewed a lot now because we've had all the reviews through the years, you know. But we always like to shake it up with some new songs. Although, as you well know, it, it's a, a moving audience in Edinburgh. You don't get the same audience all the time. We mm. could get away with doing mm. the greatest hits and our favourite songs all the time. But we like, we'll be doing two or three new ones this year just to keep, it, keep the buzz going, you know. I'll finish with this then, Barry. Okay. What's your... <laughs> the answer better be wise. What's your... I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Let's try and ask the question and, and, and unpack it a little bit. What is your favourite ever joke? Um, it's a favourite. It isn't the best joke I've ever told, but I told it on the stage when I was a student. And I get asked now and again that question, and I say, well, here's one of the first jokes I ever told on the stage. A man driving down a country lane ran over a cockerel and he was upset, and he went to the farmhouse, knocked on the door, and this woman opened the door, and he said, I appear to have killed your cockerel. I would like to replace him. And she said, please yourself, the hens are round the back. <laughs> it's sentimental, that joke. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you feel that there is some... Okay, this is a pretentious question, which I will I will cut and we'll leave it with a cockerel joke if this goes nowhere. One of the things that keeps me going as a comic through the harder gigs and the long drives and all of the the terrible, you know, the the price you pay, the long boring price you pay for getting to stand on stage, the travel, all of you know, the duff oh, gigs, the all those sort of things. Oh. Then you get to the gig and have a good time, so you think. Well, it goes with a job to travel. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think in, in some way that I don't ever really articulate, I suppose on some level I feel connected to the idea of comedy almost as a, as a calling, as something beyond just yeah. telling jokes. You're writing jokes, telling jokes, get your money, fine. Sometimes it can feel like that, you know. But, uh, but I think at the end of the day I wouldn't be able to not do this because I feel connected to some deeper idea of yeah. comedy well that it's symbolized by something i've heard recently on the radio the news quiz which was hot upon the horror of manchester yes and uh, they did it on television have i got news for you as well you would announce here we are hot upon the horrible thing that happened this week but we're going to have a laugh <laughs> in the you know after that mm. And then you set the scene for the audience. We all know what happened the other day, but here we are, and we're going to make fun of politicians, and we're going to make fun of the news, divorced from what has happened, because, well, without stating it, we're giving you a bit of relief here. It's like the the mayor of New York at the time, Giuliani, said after the horror of 9-11, take your kids out for a walk in Central Park, go and have a pizza, Don't be, you know, it's easier to say than to do. Don't be terrified. Very normally, let's have a laugh. That's that's our weapon 
you know, and you, I always say that somewhere in Zambia, somebody's doing a Mugabe joke, looking over their shoulder, you know, even in their misery, even in the horror of Syria and what's happening now and everything. Somebody somewhere is making a friend laugh at some point, just in the conversation or something, in their misery, they want some laughter for a minute or two. It's it's quite now that is pompous, but it's it's quite poignant that in the middle of it all, you know. Oh, it's, oh dear, I've stopped myself in my tracks there, but I do think. Laughter is an amazing thing. And I've been so lucky that it's like I've had this hobby (laughs) and been paid. Not a proper job. I just love that concept of it. Yeah, go on, old man. Go and see see if you're going to laugh. Thanks, Barry. You're welcome. Thanks so much. What a joy. What a joy to speak to you. Johnny Hammond... Blackpool guy, lovely guy. Yeah. He had the pissed heckler, you know, four or five times. It's really getting on his nerves. And he said, no, this is not fair. He said, I've got the microphone and the spotlight, and that gentleman's sitting in the dark. Put a spotlight on him. So the guy wakes up upstairs and swings the spotlight onto this guy at the table. And Johnny said, not just the beam, put the fucking thing on it. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Oh, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. I think probably that will be the thing that, as I'm driving away, I think, oh, I should have asked about that. I know, I know the feeling. We didn't really talk about heckles and put-downs and things like that. uh, Ronnie Golden, my mates, often, we come off the stage and they go, you never told that one of (laughs) them. I'm known for parrot jokes. Our son, Bob and I, are, we're with an online publisher at the moment. The book doesn't exist. Uh, but we're doing... Uh, they tried to rush out a book of parrot jokes for Christmas. We said, no, I want to write a proper book. Hercule Parrot's Cage Book. <laughs> How to Succeed Without Really Flying. <laughs> oh my jokes, God. cartoons and narrative. Yes. Right, just to finish with... My absolute favourite, definitive, and I tell it every gig. I get requests now, the word's gone round, I like parrot jokes. This woman goes into the shop, beautiful blue and gold parrot. She said to the guy, how much? He said, 20 pounds, 20 quid. She said, it's beautiful. He said, well, do you you know it? You can stop me. No, no, I want to hear you tell it. I think I know which one it (laughs) was. He's got a bit of style, a bit of form. He wasn't a brothel. And to put it delicately, he's got quite an extensive vocabulary. She thought, well, £20, take a chance on that. So she buys the parrot, takes it back to her flat, takes the cover off. And the parrot looked around and said, new place, very nice. And her two daughters walked in and the parrot said, new place, new girls, very nice indeed. And her husband walked in and the parrot said, hello, Keith. Thank you so much, Barry. Oh, you're That'll welcome. Do me. It's a joy. So that was Barry. What a wonderful man. What a what a, a joy and a pleasure to spend time in his company. And I hope you will join me in remembering him very fondly indeed. Um, 
So that's that. Uh, we've got a few more episodes coming up before the big birthday, uh, which is in the beginning of March, the second week of March. I think the podcast turns 10 years old. Before then, we'll be hearing from Callie Beaton, uh, who's an, an incredible story, an incredible origin story. Joan Rivers told her it wasn't too late to become a comedian when she was in her 40s and a high-flying boardroom executive at Viacom, I think, amongst other places. Um so Callie will be with us shortly. Um, also uh, coming up, Slim. Uh, Slim, who recently played to a packed London Palladium and is a fascinating conversation with Slim about the states in which he is at the moment, where he's crossing over to the mainstream uh, under new management and um, and just with 30 years of really making people howl with with laughter i yeah uh, i got i got a tip off from someone who's uh, seen him a lot on the circuit just saying that they have never ever seen him not destroy a gig so uh we'll be hearing from slim we've also got uh the the k trevor wilson episode recorded probably five years ago now four years ago um just as letter kenny was beginning k trevor wilson fantastic canadian stand-up uh, i recorded an interview with him in montreal at the comedy festival and uh, then promptly lost it, and I have now refound it. Um, and also, uh, we have Diane Spencer, who is uh, embarking on a kind of, or not embarking, she's been doing it for a while, but we have a fascinating conversation about her kind of clawing back the control of the means of production as so many comics do these days and she's the only comic I think who at the end of her gigs she uh, refs her YouTube channel to get YouTube followers so she's got a whole strategy that's absolutely fascinating very funny comic um, and then we've got and I know I don't normally say people's names before they're in the can but I'm so excited to be interviewing Daniel Rigby um, if you haven't yet heard his audio book on Audible, it's called Isaac Steele and the Forever Man. And it's basically like a very sweary Douglas Adams type uh, sci-fi yarn. Really, really fun. Really made me laugh out loud a lot. Um, and then episode 400 will be the guest from episode one, Mr. Rob Deering, uh, 10 years on. So all of that to come. Thank you for listening. Thanks to everyone uh, involved in um, uh, putting this episode together. And that's that. So I will just finish by quoting... Uh, the novelist Jonathan Coe, who tweeted this about Barry, every single thing he did was in the name of laughter and lifting our spirits. That's what I call a life well lived. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.